1: Okay, so I used to work for a big corporate accounting firm. I had two bosses. For the purposes of this story, I'm going to call them Gilligan and the Skipper, because now we call him Gilligan and the Skipper. And yes, they both perfectly looked like, acted like, bantered like, exactly like their namesakes. It was uncanny. But make no mistake, the Skipper was a Skipper. The captain, ace guy, man in charge. And Gilligan hit the same boss man title, but everyone knew. Gilligan was really just the skipper's little buddy. That's how it worked. It did work. They were the best of friends from way back. Finished each other's sentences, spoken a babble, only they understood. Until one day. No one knows why or what happened backstage, but one day, they just stopped talking closed doors, no little buddy, no finished sentences. The workplace was in an accounting uproar. In the middle of the rumors and the secrets, Gilligan calls me into his office and he says, all casual-like, Hey, you know, I think it's about time you moved on to some bigger projects. I want you to start helping out in the Clemson file. The big money file. <laughs> Here we go. Thanks, but, um, you know, the skipper, he told me under no circumstances was I ever to touch the claims to file. Wow. I think the skipper might be going about things the wrong way, don't you? And I get it. Even I'm not that stupid. Dilligan's trying to stage a coup, and he wants me to put my neck on the line. And I don't know what to do yeah he's kind of my boss but Gilligan can't run this ship he needs a skipper giving orders put Gilligan in charge and the minnow would be lost the minnow would be lost I tell him I'll get back to him right away of course the skipper he sees me coming out of Gilligan's office and his eyes narrow Lord have mercy trouble's about to go down so I'm like Hey, Skipper, Gilligan just told me I need to be more like you. Gilligan said that? Yep. Said if I started acting more like a skipper, he'd put me on the Clemson file, but only if you approved. He said nothing happens around here without your say-so. And the skipper nods slowly like I just dropped some mad wisdom. And a couple minutes later, there I see the skipper and Gilligan joking around like old times. Unpleasantness forgotten. And yes, I took full credit. I'm a uniter, not a divider. End of the day, they called me in, both of them. Where the friendly banter ceases. Gets all formal, they say. But my repeated and calculated interest in the Clemson file indicates that I'm not really a team player. Really? Really? really today on snap judgment we proudly present the fall guy amazing stories from real people caught between a rock and another rock my name is Glenn Washington about to take you on a 3 hour tour cuz you're listening to snap judgment Now then, imagine for a moment if over the next year, hundreds of motley, poorly garbed, angry men from the most isolated and remote corners just walked into the cities across America with guns and heavy explosives to announce that they were in charge. That, according to our next storyteller, is what it was like living in Kabul, Afghanistan, when the Taliban took over. Kais Akbar Omar says it was a bad movie come to life
2: at the beginning i was very scared because you see these people that you have never seen before in your life um tall broad shoulder mostly long hair big beard and they always put on coal in their eyes just imagine all of that Uh, i think the best way for people to, to, to see that image is that as if they walked out of the Bible, that kind of characters. uh, Coming to Kabul in a place where people used to dress up and and suit and tie and go to schools and go to work all every day, and now these people are ruling the country, so you, of course, you get scared.
3: Kais was 15 years old. He and his family had fled their home and moved into the rooms of an old mud-brick fort in Kabul. The place was overgrown with vines and tree roots, And Kaisa's family settled into a few rooms in the corner of the fort. Kaisa go out exploring the streets, just a lonely kid looking for something to do. And one day he ran into Zeki.
2: So uh, Zeki was one of my best friends. I first met him when I first went to school in the first grade. And we sat actually together on the same bench. He said, Zeki, what are you doing here? And he looked at me, what are you doing here? And I said, we're living here. And he said, we're living right next to you. So he sometimes jumped over the wall into the, into the garden. Sometimes we watch movies because uh, during the Taliban times, those things were forbidden. So, um, and he had a large collection of movies that he imported from Pakistan.
3: They spent most of their time dodging the Taliban. And their new neighborhood was thick with newly emboldened Taliban fighters there was one particularly broad-shouldered Talib who liked to post up in the middle of the roundabout. His name was Mullah Ghaffar. Uh,
2: and Mullah Ghaffar always stood in the middle of the roundabout. He was he was extremely intimidating from far away. You just look at him, tall guy. He had a whip in his hand, basically a big, long uh, electric cable, and he make a knot at, at both ends. So whenever he hits someone, that knot will hit you on the back. He was that kind of guy would freeze eyes because he put a lot of coal in his eyes.
3: What's coal? Uh,
2: coal is like, you know, the blackener, eye blackener.
3: Did most people in the neighborhood know Mullah Gaffar? Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, because he always stood in the middle of the road like a pillar, and uh, everyone knew that he was Mullah Gaffar.
3: To be clear, Kais explained that Mullah Gaffar wasn't actually a mullah. He just called himself that because he liked it.
2: Basically, his job was to monitor that all women... were were wearing burqa or some kind of a big scarf that they were from head to toe they were covered.
3: So it was one terrifying hot evening after prayers when Mullagafar tapped Zaki on the shoulder and ordered the young boy to follow him. He led Zaki through town to a silent, empty cemetery. And there he made a strange request. Zaki ran to Kaisa's house to tell him all about it.
2: He was laughing before even he started, and then he said, mm, an amazing thing happened. And then he told me the whole story of that how Mullah after the prayers, pulled Zeki out of the crowd and tried to tell him that how much he, uh, he was in love, and Zeki had to tell him how to find a solution for his love.
3: So he had told Zaki, I'm in love with a girl, I need your help?
2: Yeah, he basically was asking like how to behave around um, a-, a city girl.
3: The girl's name was Sheila. She lived in the house next door to Malagafar's.
2: Malagafar saw her, I think, for the first time from the second or third floor of the house next door, either washing dishes, clothes, sweeping the floor, uh, cleaning the courtyard, all of that stuff. So he fell in love with her from up there, just watching her down there working all the time. Zeki came to me and said, what should we do? What should we do about this thing? And I said, I have no clue.
3: They had two problems. One, they had to protect Sheila. She was a friend to both of their families.
2: Because I just imagined my, one of my sisters being uh, married to a Taliban and, and, and having that kind of horrible life. We needed to protect her because she was like a sister to us.
3: But the second problem was they couldn't anger or enrage Mullah Ghaffar. Both for their own safety and for Sheila's, they couldn't just say "Stay the hell away from our friend."
2: If, if we told him, he probably would do something stupid to us, you know—either beat us, or imprison us, or um, go and force uh, marry her by force, or something.
3: Could he have forced her to be his wife?
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because that happened all the time. At any moment, he could just uh, uh, walk into her house and marry her by force. So we, you know, brainstormed each other and talked about it for, for hours and until we came to the uh, idea of that maybe we should um, make him our friend first so that he relaxes around us and then we slowly, slowly reveal everything about how he will not be able to even get any close to her if he wants to do everything the normal way. That's when we start plotting, like, okay, how are we gonna go and uh, protect this girl and also uh, bring uh, Malagafar into light, like, okay, you can't do this, uh, but we know that it's gonna take a long time, and, you know, all we had was time.
3: <laughs> but am I correct that this, like a very, this seems like a very dangerous experiment you've set up?
2: Exactly, yeah, well, the thing is, we were, at the same time, we knew that we were kind of playing with fire. Uh, because uh, if anything went wrong, we have to be so cautious.
3: And Uh, was it like he could turn on you at any minute?
2: Who? uh, Of course, of course. You know, any mistake could end your life, and that means um, either um, they will put you in prison, and psychologically just that destroys you for the rest of your life, or uh, he could just, you know, shoot you. Literally just shoot you, and that's the end of it, and no one will care.
3: And so, very cautiously, the two boys began their extremist makeover project.
2: One of the first things we actually asked him was, um, well, you know, for the starters, you don't see a lot of city boys walking around with long hair like yours and wearing a big turban and wearing such a long shoulder chemise and so baggy. And he said, well, but uh, Prophet Muhammad used to wear his hair very long. And I said, well, yeah, maybe, but, you know... Uh, that was, I think, about some hundred years ago, and now things have changed. Uh, and he says, what do you mean? So what should I do? And I, and Zeki said, well, you know, for the starters, maybe you can just, you know, cut your hair a little short. No, I'm not going to do that.
3: When you make each of these suggestions, are you, are you scared?
2: I would, my hands would be shaking, my hands would be sweating. That's why we always start our sentences with maybe, or, you know, um, maybe you can, you know... Um, don't wear a turban," he said. "How do you dare tell me not wearing a turban?" I said, "Well, I'm not saying that. This is what how city girls think because the men and turban don't look attractive to them."
3: So Mullah Gaffar agreed to trim his beard. They took him to a tailor and got him a smarter, less austere shalwar kameez. He eased up on the dark coal around his eyes. They took him to a barber he actually liked
2: it so for example when we cut his hair short um, and then he came and uh, you know in in the barber shop he just stood there and combing his hair right and then left and then up backward and then uh, you know when you're playing with a doll Uh, so I think he was like our doll and and playing with him even the dangerous one you know like a bomb inside it.
3: As he kind of transformed did you start to like him more?
2: Actually we did, because he was slowly changing He was more listening to us So, I mean, come on uh, You would even like someone like that That you know, he is in charge He can do anything to you And yet he's listening to you
3: They developed a little routine together Kais and Zaki and Mullah Gaffar would work out together And then talk about women And sometimes religion And Mullah Gaffar started to do little favors for the boys He would bring them cassette tapes He had confiscated from the cars at the roundabout they would ask him to cut in front of the line at the bakery for them if they were in a hurry.
2: And then slowly, slowly, we brought up these other issues and saying, hey, uh, Mullah Ghaffar, uh, when you stand on a roundabout, uh, if you come across a little soft, it would be nicer.
3: But Zaki and Kais lived in fear of how their little experiment would end. If and when Malagafar asked for an introduction to Sheila, the boys would be in enormous trouble. The families together had made plans for Sheila to escape if Mullah Ghaffar ever came knocking.
2: We are kind of scared, like, okay, we made all of these things happen, and now at the end he probably will send either Zeki's family or my family to go to this girl's house as a suitor to ask for her hand. So we were actually dreading that moment. Like, okay, what should we do? We have to just slowly show him a few more things and, and make him to change his mind in a way that he comes and tells us that this is not the right thing to do. We had to basically insert ideas in his head.
3: Did you ever, like, straight up bring up with him the concept of women's rights?
2: Uh, no, because you have to be careful about that. We probably, I think, hint towards that, those issues, like, hey... Mullah you know, she has a complex mind. She wants to know all these things. She is very advanced. And she said, too much education sharpens a woman's mind, he would say. And that's not good for a woman. A woman needs to be meek and and tamed. And I said, well, she's not that kind of woman. You have to understand, you know. So, and then, so, I mean, these things, you know, we will will always bring these issues and throw them in the air for him. Our job was to just throw as much information as we could and compare the two worlds, and then let him do the rest of the imagination.
3: They found out about Gafar's life. He was from a very poor, very remote area of Helmand. He'd never seen electricity before he came to Kabul. He'd never gone to school of any kind. So one day, they decided to show him a movie. Were you nervous about this plan?
2: Oh yeah, we were very, very nervous. We were not sure what exactly would be the, his reaction.
3: They wheeled Zaki's tiny black-and-white TV into his gym and queued up Rambo 3 on the VHS. It's the one where Rambo helps the Mujahideen rebels fight the Soviets in Afghanistan.
2: We sat, we watched the whole movie, and each time he would just look at us so strange, like, okay, what the hell is happening? Why? Every time he looked at us and said, how these people can fit in this box? And I said, we'll explain the whole thing later. And then when the movie was over, he just turned towards us and he, said, and he said, I like him very, very much. He killed so many Russians.
3: He was ready to meet Rambo. Malagafar thought the movie was real. He wanted to find all the bad guys from the story and kill them.
2: And then we explained the whole concept of movie for him, and when we told him who Ram- Rambo was, Salva's salon, and why it was—it was as seeing a piece of ice slowly melting in a hot under the hot sun. The guy was just so disappointed, like what, how that can be even possible, that this thing is all fake and everything is fake and um, and, and and nothing is true. And then and then he just. Uh, I, we just didn't know what to expect. He just sat in a corner for five, ten minutes and total silence and didn't say anything. Uh, and he said, why everything has to change so much? It was as if, you know, the whole world uh, turned upside down.
3: He had been hanging out with city boys, listening to their music, talking about worldly ideas. I
2: think the movie was the last thing to say, uh, that he was seeing that, okay... Life is way, 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 way advanced than what we uh, are uh, having in the countryside. In the house. After the movie, when we watched the movie, he he even said then he said that that um, the best way for me is to go back to Helmand, bring my two younger brothers here, and show them what is out here. And the best thing is education, and to have uh, to have them be you know uh, you know have a good education, and 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 have a life that I will never be able to have. And then we asked him what he gonna do about this woman, Sheila, that he fell in love, and he said, I will never be able to get to Sheila because I'm fooling myself. So he saw, he saw the side that he, he was basically brainwashed and then it's like, okay, brutality and being harassed to people is not the right way to live.
3: So this was the place you had been leading him the whole time? We were
2: hoping to get him to this place. Yes, that was the whole idea. So did
3: you guys look at each other like we made it?
2: Well, we kind of, because we had to be kind of discreet about all that. But yeah, we were actually very, very happy. So when that day he walked out of the room uh, from Zeki's house, we did not, you know, high-five each other, but that was the feeling that we had, like, okay, we made it, you know. At the same time, we were kind of sad, like, okay, we manipulated the whole situation, but you actually feel sorry for a guy that, that you see that, okay, he was, he was this person who stood on the roundabout with those furious eyes covered with coal, long beard, long hair, big turban, baggy shalwar kameez, and with a, with a whip or a stick in his hand and ordering people to go this way and that way, and, and now he is He doesn't even know how to look in front of his feet and he stumbles and and you kind of feel sorry. I mean, you feel sorry like, okay, what did I do? Uh, Two weeks, three weeks, we saw him on the the roundabout doing his job. One day um, he disappeared and we never saw him again yeah well every now and again when we went to the bakery store or anything you always you know as a habit you just turn your head around to see that if he's still standing on the roundabout when he was not there yeah we kind of missed him in a way yeah then the new guy came and took over him and that new guy was exactly how Mulagafor was a few months earlier
1: Thank you, Kais Akbar Omar, for sharing your story with Snap. Check out our website, snapjudgment.org, where you will find a link to Kais's truly fantastic book, A Fort of Nine Towers. The original sound design for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Anna Sussman. When Snap Judgment returns, the original Fall Guy... What to do when the bully comes knocking? And Snap explores life after death, for real. On Snap Judgment, the Fall Guy episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Fall Guy episode today. We're talking with people caught between a rock and another rock. When I was a kid, growing up in rural Michigan, we would wait for the pond to freeze over every winter to test the ice for proper thickness. we tease and tease this kid, Joey. We tell him to go walk in the middle of the lake. Go out there, jump up and down. Come on, Joey. Come on. Get out there, Joey. Come on. If he didn't, without falling in, we're good to go. Peter Agrero. He knows what it's like to be Joey. Now this story does contain explicit language. Sensitive listeners are advised.
0: When I was 13 years old, Nellie's Pond froze for the first time since my mom was a little girl. And it's a Saturday afternoon and I'm putting on my jacket and my hat and I'm getting ready to get out of the house. In the living room, my mother's crimping my sister's hair because it's 1990 and that's what you do. She's of the opinion that my sister's hair is, quote, a rat's nest. And my sister's rebuttal is, quote, I hate you. My dad's laying on the floor on his side, chain-smoking Marlboro Reds, watching college football. One of the routines was uh, every Saturday night uh, around dinnertime, time, there's a Saturday night fight. Somebody would say something, which would remind somebody of something else, and then somebody would explode and leave the table, and two people would cry, and somebody would have to do the dishes every week. So Saturday afternoon was always kind of the undercard, getting ready for that fight. And I just wanted to get out of the house. I leave my family, I go to the garage and get my bike and ride a couple minutes over to Nellie's Pond. (laughs) I push my bike through the little sliver of woods, and I go out onto the ice. Now these pond's about the size of two football fields, and in the middle, there's a bunch of kids that had cleared off the snow when they were playing ice hockey. I never played hockey when I was a kid. There was too much equipment. All I could afford was a stick, but I didn't have to play. I could just ride my bike around the perimeter of the game. So that's what I'm doing, and I'm listening to the crunch of my fat bicycle tires on that lacy scrim of snow that forms just above the surface of the ice, and I stop over on the side, and I'm looking up through the denuded branches of a tree, and it's beautiful. Just then, I, I hear laughter, and my, and my hat's pulled from my head, and it's thrown up in the tree in front of me. It's my favorite hat. It's a green and gray Philadelphia Eagles knit hat with a pom-pom on top. I hear laughter, and I look behind me, and there's Eric. Eric's got a big pumpkin head, and his hair is too blonde. You know those kids' his hair is just too blonde? That's Eric, he's a perfect henchman. I turn around, and I see his boss, Mike Dawes. Mike's got a flat-top haircut, and these poor sign eyes, and braces. He looks like a pig on a lawnmower, and he's got his hands clamped on my hands, on the handlebars. And he's yelling in my face. He wants to fight. He's like, come on, pussy. Wait, there's your hat. It's up in the tree. What are you going to do? Kick your ass. He's screaming at me. Now, Mike's a year older than me. He's a big, stocky kid. Now, I'm I'm at 13. I'm almost six feet tall. And I, but I haven't really grown into my size yet. And he's, he's, he's trying to get me to fight. Come on, What are you going to do, and the hockey game stops, and uh, the kids are all watching. The three or four dads in the corner that are drinking coffee are looking, too. And I'm I'm in the middle, on the spotlight. I didn't even ask for it. I never liked the fight, and I don't know what I did to this kid. I don't know what he's looking for. But he's just screaming in my face, Come on, what are you gonna do? And I just sit there, and I just take it. And I stare off in the middle distance and wait for it to be over. I guess after a minute or two, he gets what he was looking for, or he didn't get what he was looking for. Then he kicks my bike tire and walks away, and says one more time, nice hat. And then he's gone, and the hockey game starts again, and the three or four dads in the corner drinking coffee start watching the game, except for one of them. He's looking at me, and I can see him when he sips his coffee, and I think he's thinking, I'm glad that's not my kid. I leave my hat for dead and I turn around and push my bike through the little sliver of woods and I ride a couple minutes back home. I put my bike in the garage and I walk past my family and I go upstairs and I turn off my bedroom lights and I lay on the bed and put a pillow over my face because I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm laying there and I hear footsteps coming up the stairs. They're big, it's my dad. My dad grew up in Northeast Philly, he was a tough guy, and he always reminded me of that. He always wanted me to be a tough guy, and I knew I'd never measure up because I never had. A few years before, I won a dance contest, and I was excited about it. Instead of congratulating me, he called me a sissy. He's going to have a field day with this one. He walks into my room, and I feel his big body sit on the foot of my bed. He says, what's the matter, pal? And from under the pillow, I say, nothing. And he lifts up the pillow. He says, what's the matter, pal? And I put it back down. I say, nothing. He takes the pillow. He throws it across the room. He says, what's the matter, pal? And I tell him, I say, Mike Dawes. He nods his head. And he says, yeah, that kid's a prick. I said, yeah, I know. And And I tell him the story of what happened. He says, "Okay." And he crooks his finger. He says, come with me. I follow him to the phone. It's a rotary phone. And he looks up D for Dawes and dials six of the numbers. And I'm thinking, okay, he's going to call Mike's dad and tell Mike's dad to tell Mike to stop bothering me. That's good. But then he dials a seventh number, and his finger's right there on that seventh number. And he hands me the receiver. And he says, you're going to call him, and you're going to tell him you're going to fight him tomorrow at 3 o'clock. And he lets go of the number. And the rotary dial seats back in. And then it's ringing and all i want to do with this phone ringing in my ear is just run away but my dad's eight feet tall and 800 pounds to me he's the biggest man in the world and i can't get around him a woman answers the phone i say hi can i talk to mike she says who's this i say tell him it's peach She says okay and i hear mike come to the phone he says uh what do you want and i say hey Mike." uh, I want to fight you tomorrow at Nellie's Pond at 3 o'clock. And I see my dad nod his head. And Mike says, but I'll kick your ass tomorrow. I say, "Okay, thanks, Mike. And I hang up the phone. My dad crosses his arms and nods his head one more time. And he takes me out to the garage. And that's when my dad starts to show me how to fight. You know, my dad didn't understand that kind of son that he had. You know, the kind of son that he had like to make things with construction paper and go down by the river and read a book. But you know, by him showing me how to fight, I could tell that he was trying to turn me into the son that he could understand—you know, one that wasn't a constant disappointment, one of the kind of kid that he knew. That he knew. You know, so I went along with it. He holds up his hands and he says, "Okay, you're right-handed. You're going to stand like this, and you're going to jab with your left to get space. And then when you can, you're going to throw your strong right." And he shows me how to make my fist correctly. And he shows me how to stand and use my weight behind the punches. I feel my fists hitting his hands like meat on meat, and and I'm believing in myself. Like, maybe this is going to work out, and, you know, I I feel strong. He pats me on the back. He says, you're going to do fine, son, and I believe it. I'm going to do fine. We go inside, and during dinner, my sister says something that reminds my mom of something. She says something that makes my dad explode, and he leaves the table. My mom and my sister start to cry. Now I have to do the dishes. Pretty good Saturday night fight, all things considered. That night, I have a hard time getting to sleep. I'm nervous, because I'm 13 years old, and the next day, i got a scheduled fight like I'm George Foreman. I eventually drift off, and the next morning, I wake up, and I get my second favorite hat. It's just red. My dad's laying on the floor, chain-smoking Marlboro Reds and watching NFL football. My mom's combing out my sister's hair. It's a rat's nest. I hate you. It's time for me to go. I push my bike through that little sliver of woods and I go out to the ice and it's empty. All the kids are somewhere else and I have the pond all to myself and I ride right out into the middle. And it's 2.50. And I'm straddling my bike all by myself. It's 255 and 257, 259. I'm just standing there and I'm looking up at the sky. It's one of those slate gray winter skies that looks like it's about two feet above your head. So, three o'clock, all alone, it's just me and the sky. 305, I see a rustle in the bushes across the way, and I, I, I start up and, and nothing. It must be a dog or a squirrel or something. And 310, I put my bike down and I start to bounce around on the balls of my feet, and I'm looking all over the place, waiting for this kid to walk onto the ice. 315, and 325, 327, I go get a branch from a deadfall and I, I start to throw it up on my hat. And on the fourth try, it knocks my hat out of the branch and I catch it in my hand and I put my red hat in my pocket and put my eagle's hat back on. And it's 3.39 and I realize he's not showing up. I get back on my bike. I push it through that little sliver of woods and I take the long way home. I put my bike in the garage and I walk past my family without even looking at them and I go upstairs and I turn off my bedroom light and I lay on the bed. I put a pillow over my face because I don't want to talk to anybody. And I wait for those footsteps to come up the stairs. And I'm waiting for him to ask me what happened. I don't know what to tell him. I just know that he's going to be disappointed in me. I'm not going to be the son that he wanted. But I never hear those footsteps. And he never comes up. And he never mentions it again. Years and years later, I'm in the Jug Handle Inn in Maple Shade, New Jersey. I'm drinking beer and eating chicken wings with my dad. Because that's what you do when you turn 21. You go to a local bar and you drink beer and you eat chicken wings. And we're talking. I'm telling him about college. And he's telling me about his life. And, you know, we're kind of two strangers sitting there. After a minute, he says, uh, hey, you remember that kid, Mike Dawson? I said, oh, that kid's a prick. He says, Yeah you remember when you went to go fight him at Nellie's Palm when you were a kid? I said, yeah, I do remember that. He says, after you left the house, I went around the long way to the other side of the pond. I hid in the bushes and I stayed there and I watched you stand there alone in the middle of the ice and I knew you were scared and I saw you standing there anyway. And I was never more proud of you than I was in that moment. I look at him for a second I don't know what to say so I don't say anything and inside I just kind of shake my head there's a lot of other stuff for him to be proud of I finish my chicken wing and I take the bone and I just add it to the pile
1: (laughs) Peter Aguero is a world renowned storyteller and performer who lives with his wife in New York City. The original score was done by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Anna Adlerstein and Joe Rosenberg. First, you must understand, there are no accidents. There are mistakes, there are errors, there are miscalculations, but there are no accidents. And this is what I told my father when I promised him I would fly in the sky like a bird. Be careful, he said. Be careful, of course it's a chance. There are known knowns, there are known unknowns. Reduce the unknown unknowns, and increase the known knowns. This is advancement, this is science. But understand, at some point, one must jump. And after I had affixed each feather in precisely the right formulation, I tested the frame. Pliant, yes, but light. The straps, so tricky, tricky. The wax, a special concoction of my own invention. How quickly it hardened. How fast it held each and every stitch. All this. And before the final test, even then, I knew triumph. I felt victory. Still, I heard his, be careful. He meant be cowardly, be safe, be at home, in the study of books and warm tea, be nothing, no. Would you believe that as I stood on the edge of the great cliff, strapped into my suit of feathers, looked down to the mountainous crag, But I felt no fear. It's true. Even as I leapt from my perch, wings outstretched, I knew the air would catch me, and she did, and I flew like a god. God, God, The path of a condor. Big sweeping arcs. The first man to see the valley beneath. And that was not enough. I beat my wings faster. I would taste the clouds that smelled of bread and morning. And when my first feather fell from the suit, I laughed. Fate thought to rob me. But I knew of her treachery. I flew on, looked down, and saw tiny dots. Tiny dots with faces pointed upward. I knew Father stood with them. I stretched my wings. Look! Look! See! Another feather fell, and another. I saw the wax blistering, bubbling. I knew, but I would have my taste of sky higher. More feathers ripped from me at every stroke. My suit once light grew heavy. Then, as a cloud of alien beauty sailed in front of me, the suit crumpled to dust and sticks. No. I hurtled toward the sea like a comet, the tiny dots growing larger, their faces filled with horror. I see my father head shaking I told you to be careful in fury I shout his answer do you not understand Listening to Snap Judgment, the Fall Guy episode. When Snap returns, we've got a sign from beyond. When the Fall Guy episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Fall Guy episode. My name is Gunn Washington, and today we're exploring what happens when you have to take the blame. And that's all well and good, but what if the person you've promised to take the blame for isn't even there? Susan Kent brings us a story of when her pact was put to the test. Snap Judgment.
4: My mom was the kind of person who was always into really creepy, spooky kind of things. She loved looking for ghosts, and we spent a lot of time at cemeteries hanging out. Cece was my mom's best friend. She was very Catholic, and she hated the idea of spirits. It was amazing that mom even got her to play Ouija board. So as they were playing, mom started making fun of her and was like, listen, you better hope I don't die first, because if I do, I am so going to haunt you. And Cece was like, Barbara, you can't say that. That's awful. Why would you do that to me? They fought back and forth for a while, and Mom eventually made a deal with her saying, "Okay, if I die first, I promise I won't haunt you if you were promised that you will haunt me if you die first. I was about eight years old, and I was in my grandmother's kitchen where the phone was. And when it rang, my mom went to pick it up and... She said, Wait a minute, what? What? And then all of a sudden, she just started screaming and crying, and she collapsed in the middle of the floor. And my grandmother came running in, and I was holding her head, trying to hug her, and my grandmother was just telling her to get up off the floor. And we realized it was Cece, her best friend Cece had a brain tumor. She completely fell apart, and it terrified me. After she came back from the funeral, she's like, well, you know, Cece's going to be coming back. It was like every night, did you hear anything? Have you seen anything? What's going on? If the dog started barking at something that we couldn't see, we would attribute it to Cece. It was like, oh, that's her. Cece's here. And it was so exciting for those first couple of years because... We just kept thinking that something really significant was going to happen that was going to prove that it was Cece, and nothing ever really came. She had always been kind of the life of the gathering when people would come over to Grandma's house, and, you know, everybody sits around the kitchen table in the South, and they have cake and drink tea and chat, and Mom was always the funniest one. And as she started to give up hope, she seemed to get sadder and more withdrawn. About 10 years later, after CeCe died, I was 18 and I was at home, I looked up at this crucifix that had hung in CeCe's room that Mom had had in her room ever since CeCe died. And when I looked up at the crucifix, on the wall, at a 45 degree angle, under Jesus' left arm, was CeCe's name written in green letters. And I went running down the hallway towards the kitchen. I dialed my mom, who was at work, and when she answered the phone, I was screaming and crying so hard that I couldn't get words out. And she started asking questions like, Are you okay? Is there somebody in the house? Did you cut yourself? What is going on? Are you okay? What do you need? And eventually I got a breath in and just screamed, Cece, she was like, what are you talking about, Cece? And I'm like, Cece, Cece, she's here. She wrote her name on the wall. After she came back that evening, she started going through my desk and my different drawers, pulling out markers and crayons and pens and eyeliners, any sort of thing that, ha- that was green in any shade. And she started making these little hash marks next to Cece's name on the wall, trying to find something that matched it and it became, like, an inquisition. People kind of heard rumors that we had had this ghost. Kids in the neighborhood actually came over and graffitied and put CeCe's name, spelled wrong, on the back of a shed in our backyard. It became kind of a joke. The idea that Nobody believed me, especially my mom, was devastating. A couple of weeks later, I was in the living room, and I was getting ready to go to bed. And all of a sudden, I hear this screaming and crying. I went running back to find out what was going on, and she was just squatting on the floor, holding this painting that had been on the wall, and she held it up and there was a little tag attached to the frame. I realized that my mom had written CC a note. Is it you? I hope so. I love, you. I love you. And I saw the word yes written in green and at the 45 degree angle like the other writing. And And I was so excited for her. I started telling her like, see, it's okay. It is her and now you can be happy. She just, she cried for a while and eventually got up and hung the painting back up. It was very quickly apparent that she hadn't believed. It was really disappointing to me. I thought she would be excited. You know, we'd been looking for Cece for a decade. Maybe a month after... Mom found the note behind the picture. I was sitting in the living room with her and my sister. And all of a sudden, this frame just jumped off the wall behind her head and hit the floor. And mom was startled and was like, what was that? Mom hopped up, and she checked it out. It was this framed, embroidered piece that she had made for Cece that had been returned to her after Cece died. And the nail was still in the wall. It was still at the right angle for holding a picture. I was grateful to Cece because I thought, well, finally, she'll believe me and know that it wasn't me and that it wasn't my sister or anyone else. She made the comment like, well, I guess now I know, huh? But it didn't change anything. We've lost contact a lot over the years Anytime we would talk on the phone, it was just how awful life was for her and how broke she was. And we talked very infrequently at the time she had gotten cancer. Right before she died, one of the last conversations we had, we were talking that she wanted to be cremated and she didn't want to service and those kinds of things. And as we were kind of finishing up the conversation, she looked at me and said, well, Susan, you know... You can tell me the truth now about Cece. You know that, right? And I just looked at her and I was like, You know, Mommy, I've been telling you the truth all along. And um, she just rolled her eyes at me and rolled over in the hospital bed. That was our last coherent conversation. So do you think that she's going to haunt you? I hope that she's going to haunt me. Um, When I got back to New York, I wrote a note on the back of a picture in my house that, um... It just says, I miss you. I hope you're okay. And so, I hope that one day I'll find a word or something there that she's written to me and then I'll know will you know? I'll know that she knows I was telling the truth the whole time I told her um, and I'll know that she's okay wherever she is now
1: Thank you so much, Susan, for sharing your story with the Snap. Susan Kent is a wonderful writer and performer and lives in Lipson, Brooklyn. Go to our website, SnapJudgment.org to find out more. The original score for that piece was done by Pat Lasidi Miller, who was produced by Anna Adlerstein. It's about that time. And if you want more Snap medicine, Here's my prescription. It's so easy. Just subscribe to the Snap Podcast and get hours of Snap Storytelling delivered. At Snappers. Better subscribe while you can. SnapJudgment.org. Facebook, SnapJudgment. Twitter, SnapJudgment. Snap was produced by a fearless crew. Please give it up for the Uber producer, Mark Gilligan Ristich. The Skipper, Pat McSee Miller. The Millionaire, Anna Sussman. Nobody's wife, Julia DeWitt. Davey, the movie star, Kim. The professor, Joe Rosenberg. Renzo Marianne Gorio. Nancy Lopez, who's already on the island. The people who tricked our castaways this week on an Adderstein. Teo Leon Morimoto, and Eliza Smith. Jasmine Aguilera doesn't like boats. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you would sail to a secret forbidden island discover a giant gorilla roaming the jungle, capture him, bring him back only to get a stern note from your landlord reminding you that no pets are allowed and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX.